1: Doing our thing here, still in the book of Second Samuel. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Chapter 5.
1: Yep, we just started on David's anointing.
2: Well, he, he's he been anointed. We're actually getting ready to move into him conquering Jerusalem. And, oh, okay. Yeah, well, come on. We took five minutes to go look at the ducks. I mean, yeah, well, that's
1: exactly <laughs> how my brain works.
2: Ducks. Everything else is gone. <laughs> yeah,
1: looking at the wildlife. So, yeah. The- Speaking of distracting, I'm going to slow that down. I'm going watching the whole time okay sorry (laughs) i was looking at our our uh recording program here or no
2: (laughs) it's good to have a you know something like that on your end because i feel like i'm always talking about where i can't read my own handwriting so (laughs) Uh, i had
1: one of the things set where it was the wave pattern was moving way too fast
2: it was distracting those are like hypnotic (laughs) you have to look at them so yeah so we left off uh, a week ago for everybody listening and Two minutes ago, for us, uh, David's getting ready to uh, conquer Jerusalem, and we wanted to look at kind of the significance and importance of Jerusalem because it I, it's a big thing with a lot of religions, I and mean, it's a major city for so many different faiths, and it seems like it's just always been that way, right? And um, it's kind of fascinating that that this place has so much significance. Now, we talked about some of the uh, extra biblical sources that. Um, mentioned Jerusalem and the the things we can discover about it through archaeology. And now we're going to move into what the Bible has to say about Jerusalem as a city. Our our first mention of Jerusalem goes all the way back to Genesis 14, 18. And this is when Abraham has just rescued Lot after uh, Lot had been captured in what's known as the Battle of the Four Kings. And This was an interesting story. We have an episode on it, so you can go back and listen to that. But uh, Melchizedek arrives during all of this, Mm. and he's described as the king of Jerusalem, uh, which—sorry, the king of Salem, Salem. (laughs) which is another name for Jerusalem. And he's also described as a priest of the Most High. So he's a king and a priest. This is going to be very important in David's theology moving forward. And we're going to talk about that as we get there, because— another fascinating component of David's reign. Now, the Amarna tablets, which we talked about in the last episode, which are those letters from the Egyptian overseer of Canaan to Pharaoh, uh, they're older than the Bible, but the Bible reports evidence that's earlier than the the Amarna tablets. So if, if I think that makes sense. Uh, basically, the Bible's recording a um, Events that happened around 2000 BCE. It's real hard to get precise um, on these dates because once you get so old and so far back there, it's really difficult to, to um, get more than just an around this time period. And yeah, <laughs> you know that's okay. But the next mention we have of Jerusalem, we go all the way from Genesis to Joshua ten. And this is when the king of Jerusalem attacks Gibeon for making peace with Israel. And there's this is the famous battle where the sun stands still. Mm-hmm. So some significant times that it's showing up. And in this passage, the king of Jerusalem is referred to one of as one of five Amorite kings who were fought later, defeated, and their bodies were hung. So uh, again, significant time, major battle. And Joshua 15 and Judges 1 both report a battle against the inhabitants of Jerusalem during the Canaanite conquest. So in Joshua 15, we're told that Jerusalem is part of Judah's allotment, and in Joshua 16, we're told that it's part of Benjamin's allotment. So it's very interesting that the city belongs to both Judah and Benjamin, Mm -hmm. given the situation with David being from the tribe of Judah and Saul being from the tribe of Benjamin. Right. So... In Judges 1, it tells us that the two tribes share the city. And verse 8 of Judges 1 says, Judah captures it and sets it on fire. And this is where, when we were talking about Adonai Bezek, the king who had his thumbs and his mm-hmm. big toes cut mm-hmm. off in the previous episode, um, this is where he dies. So the the story of Jerusalem within the Bible is very sparse until we get to David, but this kind of amuses me because if you look at Joshua 1563 this is how it reads it says but the jebusites the inhabitants of Jerusalem the people could not drive them out so the jebusites dwell in this dwell with the people of Judah to this day
0: mm-hmm.
2: now fast forward to judges 1 but the Be- people of Benjamin could not did not drive out the jebusites who lived in Jerusalem so the jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day mm-hmm. so um, in Joshua, the writer blames the, the Judites for not driving out the Jebusites. Right. And in Judges, the writer blames the Benjaminites for not driving them out. And right. it's because they both live in the city together. And I think what you're seeing there is a little bit of bias on the part of the writer of Joshua versus the writer of Judges and who he's blaming for this failure. Right. And, and. Um, the thing is, it was the responsibility of both these tribes to do this. Mm-hmm. And the point in both verses is no one stepped up to do it. No one did what they were supposed to do. And so the consequence is the Jebusites are still living in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. This whole time, throughout the entire period of the Judges through the reign of Saul, they're still in the city. And so this becomes problematic for david now david chooses the city if we want to be just very um practical about the matter it's the perfect place for his reign because his biggest obstacle as a king is to unite benjamin with the rest of the nation i mean they have just had one of their own removed from power and they they're a little bit sketchy on whether or not they should trust david right and so for him to choose this as the place where he's going to rule it is kind of symbolic of a desire to unite everyone together and it's so it's the perfect location for his his capital and we we still have this issue of who the jebusites were uh the bible really never clarifies exactly who we're talking about because if you go back to Genesis they're just an unnamed people group who live in the city when we look in Joshua they're named as Amorites but they're identified as Jebusites so mm. they're they're part of the Amorite nation according to Joshua in Samuel they're just called Jebusites and the reason why it's so important to figure out who the Jebusites are is because it determines how they're going to fit into a, a larger picture and uh, this is where things get really kind of crazy because we've got a lot of variables and I'm not sure I have a great answer for this question, despite it being important. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to look at the variables and I'll let people kind of weigh the evidence and come to their conclusions because, um, the Jebusites themselves are named among the nations that are supposed to be devoted completely to destruction, that, that Kharam. And so if, the people in Jabus at the time of David are true Jebusites, then David is fulfilling a long neglected command of the Torah to drive them out. And this connects him back to Moses. And as David's first official duty and act as king, it, it proves that he is devoted to upholding the Torah. Mm. However, if they're Philistines, they're not covered in this mandate by the Torah as one of the nations that should be j- devoted to karam. Um, so we we lose our connection to the Torah and we lose the connection back to Moses at least in this instance. However, they are still supposed to be driven out because driving out the Philistines is the purpose of having a king, and that mm-hmm. that was one of Saul's great great failures. But then we've got this weird thing where the the verse that we had just read uh, says that the Philistine or the Jebusites had said even the blind and lame are going to ward you off. And right. so we've got to figure out if this helps us understand who the people are.
1: Yeah. Cause it's kind of a weird verse and there, there's a question if you look at it, is it, is it even our weak people can defeat you or is it we've, blinded and maimed so many people, you're going to be terrified by what we can do.
2: And those are the, the questions the rabbis bring to the table, because what you're reading there is is dead on. I mean, now... If, but which one? Uh, well, that's a good question because rabbis don't like to offer solutions either. They give you you ask you know for a two option question and they give you five more options. I mean, this is how, how they go about things, and then they never resolve anything.
1: <laughs> so that's how it seems to be. Yeah, no,
2: it's it, it, and I like that because again, you know, we are all about the conversation. So if we connect the story back to Genesis twenty one, Abraham makes a treaty with. The king of the Philistines, uh, Abimelech. And they claim that under this treaty, Abraham and his descendants could not take land from the Philistines. And so uh, to remove the Philistines from the country was a violation of this treaty. And it, the written document, according to the story, which is a great story, is that the written document that Abraham and Abimelech signed was placed in the mouth of two idols. And these two idols stood at the gates of Jabus, and their names were the Blind and Lame. And the, these two idols would rise up and fight David and in protection of the, the treaty made by Abraham. Hmm. Probably not a great solution, but it is a fun story. Hmm. So- and why, why would you have <laughs> idols called Blind and Lame? Why do you have idols called Death? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. This is... I mean, if they're
1: supposed to be protectors.
2: <laughs> right? Or maybe the idea was they could blind and lame anyone who attacked them. I, I, these are great... I, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you, these are the things that make you wonder about the way people perceive their idols. Uh, yeah, it's very strange. I think this, that's one of the harder things for modern readers to connect to in the Bible Because we don't have that mindset, and even in the church where we do consider spiritual powers and spiritual warfare to be very real things, Mm -hmm. um, we've been told for so long that idols are worthless nothings that they have no power. That for us to think of them as having power is just completely—it's beyond anything we've been conditioned to even consider. Right. And these people really did believe that their idols possessed power and i i think that's part of the beauty and part of the um the advantage of the divine council worldview is it really forces you to understand and grapple with the idea that spiritual forces were manifest and that the bible never disavows the fact that these spiritual entities have power right and and if you want to talk about um i didn't plan to go go here but um there is a really great book uh, by Benjamin Sumner, uh, The Bodies of God in the Old Testament or I I probably butchering that title. But he talks about the significance of idols and how they did and they housed these spiritual forces according to the way people looked at the objects they worshiped and how you could have Multiple idols of the same God in several different areas, and it still not diminish the god right and so uh, while it and the funny thing is while it does not diminish the God, it still limits the god so it's it's a very interesting dichotomy of of thinking that we as modern the modern audience we've we, we just lost mm-hmm. and so uh, I think it's really good for us to to go back and think about these things and try to consider. How would we view it if we did believe spiritual forces and spiritual entities were real and they had the ability to impact our lives? How would we represent this? And I say the modern audience, I should probably like narrow that down to modern American, modern European, because if you still go to places like, um, you know, South America and Africa and India and some some of these other countries where spirituality is still practiced in a very tangible way it's not just an abstraction you still find the these representations of these gods as being part of their their worship and so i think that this would probably be easier for them to to wrap their minds around than us but a, another solution to this verse is that these were hittites And so in Genesis 23, Abraham buys a field from the Hittites so that he can bury Sarah. Mm -hmm. And so he purchases specifically from Ephron, the Hittite. And the story is said to illustrate that Jews should always purchase land from the Hittites, not take the land, even if it's offered as a gift. Because when Abraham tried to buy Mm -hmm. the field, he tried to give it to Abraham and Abraham refused. Now, the, the Hittite solution proposes that under the terms of the agreement with Abraham, that even the blind and the lame could hold land against Israelite invasion. Okay. And so that even the weak ones, like you were saying, are, are capable. That's all they need for, for defense. And it has the added benefit of explaining why later David is going to buy a field from a Jebusite that's going to be in 2 Samuel 24, 18 through 25. So, okay. So... Um, And God responds to the prayers of David at this place where he bought the field, uh, and this is where David built an altar. Now, like I said, these are fun solutions. There's probably a better answer that doesn't require we add so much to the text and can be supported from some archaeological evidence. Okay, do you have any of that? I do, I have a little bit. So yeah... um, (laughs) Thank you, Becca. Uh, so Jerusalem's a, a small was a small city at this point. It's only 12 acres, which uh, if you live in the country, you know what a 10-acre plot looks like pretty easily. So sure. it's a 12-acre plot. And uh, Bergen describes this actually as uh, a city that sits on a finger-like hill that comes out from the mountains. Mm. And on each side of each of the three sides, there were uh, very steep valleys. So it made attack very limited. It was hard to get to. Uh, the defense of the city was so so easy because of the, the um, geographical formations that the blind and the lame were all that were needed to protect it. And I think that's really what's being said here is our city is so well placed that we don't have to work hard in order to defend it and i mean obviously if the jebusites have in assuming that we it's been possessed by the same people from genesis onwards because we don't have any record of the city switching hands from genesis in the bible from mm. the original inhabitants if these the same people group managed to maintain control of that city they were capable of defending it it was the city that was was easily defended and there weren't a lot of people who could overthrow it so we're going to move on to verse seven and we're going to talk about how the city was overthrown because david comes up with a unique solution nevertheless david took the stronghold of zion that is the city of david so this is the first time in the bible that we encounter the name zion okay um Its meaning is unknown, despite the number of times it's used. We have no clue. Hmm. Uh, Zamora suggests that it's based on an Arabic word that might mean a fortress located on a ridge, which makes sense. Okay, yeah. And um, it it fits with the descriptions of the physical location. So verse 8, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said the blind and the lame shall not come to the into the house. So David offers up a battle plan, and he takes advantage of Jerusalem's one weakness, and it's the water supply. Which, if you studied any siege warfare nope. <laughs> at <laughs> well, all, first thing you got to take care of exactly. So on the southeastern slope of the city, there's a forty-nine foot uh, vertical shaft that carries um, water from, Gion's, from the Gion Spring into the city during siege times. And the the idea here is that David's sending his men into that shaft to get into the city. Now, for a long time, this was not a widely accepted um, or a, even a viable option because of linguistic issues, which I'm not going to nerd out on what all those are. Okay. But more recent archaeology has revealed that it might be time to reconsider this. That this is this is an appropriate translation, and so that I had a real hard time getting a picture of what all the archaeological evidence showed. And so I did, I'm not even going to try to articulate it, but you can look up the different water systems and get diagrams and and see how it could come into play. But mm. a lot of these water tunnels and, and um, conduits were not they just weren't found until recently. And okay. so now we know that there are actually um there's these shafts that would allow going up this vertical shaft an actual possibility and make it a plausible um means strategy. yeah yeah exactly a plausible strategy for taking over the city. So this verse is also another verse that causes problems because it says, David, in his soul, he hates the blind and the lame. Now, David is not referring to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's, he is referring to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, not people who are actually blind and lame. And he's turning the Phil- the Jebusite, I don't know why he want to say Philistines. He's turning the Jebusite taunt back on them. And he, um, he is basically saying that their defenders of the city are, aren't any more effective than the blind and the way uh, and the lame. And as far as not being allowed in the house, this is not saying that the blind and the lame are not allowed in the house as in the temple, as some people have read it, um, or even that they won't be allowed in David's palace, because we are going to find out later that David actually invites at least one lame person to always sit at his table. So um, this is, Not a prohibition against the temple or David's house, because the blind and the lame could enter into the temple. They just couldn't serve as priest. And so we have to be careful not to insert too much in the reading. Mm -hmm. And so David's saying the defeated inhabitants of Jerusalem are not going to be allowed to partake in what's going to be the bounty of his rule. And he's making sure that they know that only Israel is going to benefit from what he has to offer the country because these people have stood in his way. Now, 1 Chronicles 11 uh, 4 through 9 offers a slightly uh, different version. And I'm going to pick up in verse 6. It says, David said, Whoever strikes the Jebusite shall be command, chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first, so he became the chief. So, Chronicles is interesting in that it completely avoids talking about all of the problems with Joab and Abner. It never goes into that story that we went over a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it doesn't talk about how Abner is the real power behind Ishbosheth. And, and in fact, when when Saul dies in Chronicles, it's there's no challenge. There's no one who could even possibly be considered for the throne other than David. Mm-hmm. So all of Saul's descendants are kind of erased from the story and David takes power with any kind of without any kind of perceived delay. In Samuel the writer is stopping to address the idea that these powerful generals can actually be problematic and that they can become the true power behind the throne and you know they can become in all you know practical purposes it, they become the king where the king is just a figurehead. But the writer in Samuel here Samuel here is going out of his way to be perfectly clear that David conquered Jerusalem and no one else can even share in the glory. So we don't have this mention of Joab in the in the story in Samuel.
1: Okay. In Chronicles.
2: No, we don't have, have it in Samuel. Okay. okay. But we have him we have Joab in Chronicles showing gotcha. up, and he becomes okay. the one who actually facilitates. David gives the command, but it's Joab who conquers the city. Okay, okay I got you now. Yeah. And, you know, in Chronicles, Joab is a celebrated general. He is David's right-hand man. We, there's no reason to really have any kind of doubt about him, but mm. Samuel wants you to have that doubt. And um, in Samuel, the his role really is downgraded into something very negligible, because we aren't supposed to celebrate him too highly. Why? Because David's David's position isn't cemented yet in Samuel.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We, we're still having to make that that apologetic for David's um, David's reign over Saul's house, because we're having to prove that David is the right king. Right, and yeah. so whenever um, Samuel talks about these issues where there could be any confusion of power. It's always going to come down on the side of reminding you David is the right and appropriate king, where Chronicles is going to say David was such a great king, he could have these powerful men at his side, and there wasn't any kind of threat to his power, even though they were such amazing leaders. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is where we see how the writers are writing to two different audiences they aren't contradicting each other. They're just giving you the elements that support what their audience needs to hear or what they believe their audience needs to hear. So Makes sense. Verse 9. David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built the city all around from the Milo inward. Now, Calling a conquered city by the name of the one who conquered it was very common in ancient Near East cultures. Sure, And so David, we're seeing him follow the tradition of the culture of his time. Milo is an interesting word. It means filled up. So he built the city all around from the filled up parts inward. And it's believed that David at this time is when he began to extend Israel to encompass these pre-existing Jebusite terraces that they had built down from the city and um, these are pieces of land that the Jebusites had previously filled up. And the need for this extensive kind of building program is going to be revealed um, soon as we get into the rest of David's reign. But, you know, 12 acres isn't a large place to house 600 people and 600 men and their families. Right. So you've got to think about the, the terms of what, you know, in the terms of the numbers that David's bringing to this area. So verse ten. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. So just in case you forgot, the writer wants you to remember David's greatness is credited to one source. This is the Lord, the God of hosts. This is the title that, that Hannah used for God in her prayer in Samuel one eleven. It's the title that refor- refers to um, an ordered army, and even uh, it can refer to uh, creation. And so, you know, Hannah had appealed to the warrior side of God, and Mm -hmm. she's praying that those who held power in the day would be overthrown and displaced because she understood it would be a battle. And is it, you know, it's kind of appropriate that the answer to her prayer and prophecy is this warrior king and who's turned the values of Israel on its head because that's what her prophecy was all about was you know the if you go back to um 1 Samuel 2 it's all about this reversal in which the poor are going to be lifted up that those who had done without are going to have plenty and David is we're seeing him embody these concepts because he is that warrior king He's bringing equality to the people. He's won the hearts of his enemies through love, through patience, as far as the enemies within his own country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, such a man can only exist and achieve this kind of greatness if he is upheld by God. So, David is the fulfillment of the prophecy. And I think we need to keep that in mind that David is not someone, he's not a self made man. Right he, He's not someone who was just so good at fighting that we should all respect him, which is how a lot of the um, a lot of people in his day would have viewed him if they didn't have this idea that gods were using humanity to fulfill their plans. So when we talk about David, we need to look at why he was necessary. And he was necessary, not because Saul was a terrible king. He's necessary because it goes right back to Shiloh. It goes right back to the Levite and the concubine. It goes all the way back to this period of judges where people were doing what was right in their own eyes. Yeah. And so now God is basically bringing in someone who can turn all these things around. And I love the fact that it's Hannah that is the catalyst for this change so i've probably talked enough about that on previous episodes we're going to talk about it again but we'll put it aside for now so verse 11 and hiram the king of Tyre sent messengers to david and cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built david a house and david knew the lord had established him over israel and and he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people israel so if we read this in context with where we are in the text Uh, There's nothing to suggest that Hiram's presence is anything less than positive. David's king, he's risen to prominence, so much so that other kings from foreign nations are saying, hey, we need to make pals with this guy, with with this new king. And and it's politically smart for Hiram to show up because Israel shares a a border with Phoenicia where Tyre was located. So it's, it's good to be friends. Yep. It's good economics. Uh, you know, a king of a fledgling nation, he's going to be building. This is what kings did. As soon as they came into power, they built new things, whether it was temples, palaces, roadways, mm-hmm. waterways, y- and what way to advertise? You can offer all of these services to him than with a gift. Right? We do it today. <laughs> you know, let me show you how great I am. Um, it's good economics because. All of the trade routes, anything south uh, of Tyre was going to take them right through Israel. So Mm -hmm. if they want to trade with Egypt, they've got to go through Israel. Who's going to be one of your biggest um, buyers of your products? Egypt. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just the facts of the um, situation. Now, if you're an astute Bible reader, this is kind of ominous and foreboding, because when we talk about Tyre, there's a specific passage that comes to mind for almost every Bible scholar, which is Ezekiel 28. Okay. And it's the prophecy against the Prince of Tyre. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so if you studied anything about spiritual warfare, Satan, the divine council worldview, you're going to be familiar with that. And Tyre, Tyre's in a a Phoenician city. Their high God was El. Um, and El had a divine counsel,
0: mm-hmm.
2: described very much in the terms that we find applied to God. And the opening of the chapter of Ezekiel 28, um, God confirms what we have often affirmed. kings were you know, Kings were representatives of the gods, and they were worshipped as if they were gods. So yeah. I don't think we can say that too often. And so... Verse 2 of Ezekiel 28 says, Because your heart was proud, and you have said, I am a god. And remember, this is being written to the prince of Tyre I sit on the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no god. So, the, there's this really interesting thing that goes on with this chapter when the opening verses talk about the humanity, the, the person sitting on the throne. And then in verse 11, Ezekiel shifts his language. And we began to see a different picture of who God's talking to, because he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. That's verse 13, being covered in jewels and and polished, precious metals. Um, Mm -hmm. Verse 14 says, you were an anointed cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain, God, in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So you cast, this verse 16, so you cast I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of god and I destroyed you o guardian cherub so he's not talking to a man at this point he's talking to a spiritual being and more in the chapter uh, you can you can see that this is god is really talking about that dichotomy or that not even a dichotomy that that interplay between a human ruler and the spiritual power mm-hmm. behind it mm-hmm. and it makes sense when you have this idea that kings we're representatives of the, of the gods. It's right. It's not confusing.
1: Yeah. And it's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I know which passage you're talking about now that you've gone through it. I, I, I can never remember anything by the numbers. Um, <laughs> I have a hard time with that too, <laughs> but it, it's kind of interesting. Cause it, you know, we, uh, it, you see trends change and different things come mm-hmm. out with different bits of scholarship. And I do remember, you know, being, uh, told that that was, you know, a description of Satan mm-hmm. growing up. And then there was, for a while, there was really big to say, no, 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 he's just describing a king there. Everyone's mm-hmm. all confused about it. It has nothing to do with spiritual warfare. And now it's like back to the other side. <laughs> it's just, it's very interesting but to, I think... to see the shifts in, in how the church looks at that.
2: I, well, and I think that when you're looking at, uh, people who do serious scholarship on it, it, there was we've kind of brought the pendulum swing back to the middle, yeah because it's not just about a man and it's not just about Satan and, and you know even if it was about S- Satan it, you know that's a good question because <laughs> uh, we could talk about the development of the Satan figure oh, yeah well uh, yeah that, that's a convoluted
1: <laughs> uh, mess of things and it, exactly. it, it's very i mean it is very interesting to think about that because the the modern concept of of what a lot of Westerners think of when we think of Satan is not at all what they would have thought of in the right. ancient world. I mean, the the Israelites when you know we're talking about <laughs> how Job, you know, the Satan it was it was an office. It wasn't it wasn't necessarily the the divine rebel character that right? we think of it and you know at the end of Genesis or at the end of Revelation that is cast in, you know. But that's a whole Right? Or, can of worms.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. And so we won't go there, but for people who want to follow up, because I didn't want to, I, I just wanted to show why this is kind of ominous. If you, if you've been reading your Bible and paying attention. Mm-hmm. So for people who want to take it further, I'm going to recommend that you go to Unseen Realm, the book by Dr. Heiser. If you don't want to buy the book, you can go to episode 143 of the Naked Bible. Okay. So that way you can follow up and, re- and read more. Uh, and you're, he's going to talk on there about how uh, Ezekiel 28 is connected with Isaiah 14, and Isaiah 14 is connected to Genesis 3, and you know, in Isaiah 14, that's where we get the, um, the translation from the Hebrew into the Latin, where we get the term Lucifer, and so again, in Isaiah 14, what we see in that verse is we have an earthly ruler being, um, or that chapter, an earthly ruler being warned. And then we have this really in-depth description of spiritual events that are taking place or have taken place, and they exceed any kind of human experience as far as we know. Right. And so in these prophecies, God warns, you know, Ezekiel and Isaiah, God warns this heavenly prince that the, the earthly representative of this God, that he's going to experience consequences for not following the true God. And so... When I was working through this, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I thought it was interesting, so i wrote it wrote it down. And it finally kind of clicked to me uh, why we had to have forty years in the in the desert and why we had to have that period of judges, and why, you know, Israel didn't just arrive in Canaan and install a, a king over all the land because, you know, in, in the ancient times, the, the gods were territorial gods, and they're very tied to the land. And, you know, even in some stories, whenever you took the god out of their land, they lose their power. And so the religions in their earliest forms, they they profess that the kings and the rulers of these lands were direct descendants of the gods. And, you know, down later they'd be downgraded as just representatives. But In order to be a direct representative of a God of a specific land, you had to be born from a long line of succession, which could be traced back to the original God who had power over that land. Sure. So um, by... you know, by removing Israel from the land and sending them into Egypt and doing the whole Exodus thing, God was demonstrating, you know, hey, I'm not tied to the land. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the land where I choose to manifest, but I'm not limited to the land. I'm not reliant on the land for power. And by waiting to, to crown a king, God prevented even the appearance that his kings were a product of an illicit relationship with a God to Fair produce enough. this yeah. king. And so when he crowns Saul a king and says, Hey, this is going to be my guy, and then he replaces them with, with David. He even further removes that idea that there is this genetic connection from one king to another back to the God. And so when um God um founds his kingdom, it, it's the rulers are it's based on invitation. It, it's based on will you join me? And <laughs> yeah you know this is really huge because it's removed from that place where the ruler was born as the result of the abuse of women, right. and so to have this this um to have this happen really sets God apart from the other nations in a way that could not have happened, say, if Abraham had just immediately received the land and then Isaac was born cuz Isaac was there was some discussion even among the rabbis was he Abraham's son or was he a son of God. And so mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. we get through the judges where it was Samson was he the the son of his earthly father or was he the son of of God. Right. And so we've got some really some really entrenched thoughts that had to be broken off in order to to make this Reveal the character of God, and so when we uh, you know that's kind of all on aside, but i I did find it interesting how God even took into account the way things could be perceived, right you know, no matter what truth was spoken about the situation, God took into account what people might think based on the cultural influences mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so when we get back to Samuel when we've got this guy this king who is later the guy who is the later king of Tyre and king Hiram who is the present king of Tyre and okay sorry my brain went to spaghetti mess with all of this because Tyre uh, Hiram is the king of Tyre at this point sure later on the king of Tyre is going to be identified as someone that will be mistaken for Satan. Okay, and to have this guy come down and bring these great gifts to David, it is a little troubling. I mean, this is the first guy outside of Israel honoring um, this new king of Israel, and it's kind of a, a little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen later on. You know, David's going to face some temptation as a king. And some of them he's going to do well, and some of them are going he's going to fail miserable miserably at. and so the the question of all of the heroes is, do you hang on for God's promises, or do you accept the gifts of Satan? And so mm-hmm. now, in this moment, because there is no connection with Hiram uh, and Satan, the Satan figure, the king of Tyre. It's a celebrated event it's seen as completely appropriate, right, but the reason why it becomes conflicted is because we do have all of this um we have that baggage tied to tire, and i the reason why I bring that up is because I wanted to show how what we know about what happens in later events within the Bible actually influences. The, the meanings that we put on previous events, because mm-hmm. there is nothing within the scripture, or even commentary that comes after, that suggests that accepting this gift from Hiram is, a, is inappropriate, or that it's wrong. Right. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, it, it says right there, the verse after Hiram shows up, is that this was done because God is causing David to be honored. So, this is really important in the case of Hiram because Hiram's going to show back up later. He, we're going to find him with Solomon when Solomon builds the temple. Mm-hmm. And if you know anything about the Illuminati, the Masons, all of that, then Hiram becomes a person of interest within that kind of culture. And I'm not going to go into that now. We may talk about that more when we get to Solomon. I,
1: I didn't realize he was such a, point of interest
2: oh it's huge it's huge and maybe we can get doug overmeyer to come talk about that because i know doug has extensive researched extensively and okay yeah and so it's a major part of that culture and people see this as something horrible that david did if you think along these lines
1: right right
2: then it colors how we look at this view, but I mean, look at verse 12, and David knew the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he'd exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David is seeing this. He's telling us how to read this. Hiram is honoring David because God is honoring Israel, and he's telling these other kings of other nations, this is my guy. Right. You you need to to seal the deal and make sure that you guys get along, mm-hmm. because He's going to be the one who who rules, and so I don't want anyone to to read too much in this now. I know for some people I've like you know said here's all the reasons she should, and this was all new to them, right but for some people, <laughs> this is
0: it,
2: there is that automatic baggage right and you know um I think there's always been some crazy baggage with the building of the temple and the building of these these great palaces because you know you can go back in a lot of literature and there's even stories about how Saul uh not Saul Solomon managed to subdue demons and force them to do labor on the temple and so there's some stories where Hiram was the one who helped him perfect this magic and, and make it happen and yeah, you know, so there's always been some kind of weird um, obsession or um, conspiracy theory that goes along with these events, and they're really fascinating because it shows you how far you can take a, a mm-hmm. good story. Yeah, but again, we got to stick with what the Bible says, and and there's nothing negative about this at all. And um, I and i also want to point out because this kind of fits with how we should read it if you'll notice in ezekiel 28 when you go back god commands that ezekiel lament over the king of tyre hmm. and so the idea of lamenting is we this is something we should already be familiar with cuz david has lamented the death of saul You know, and Samuel grieved over Saul being displaced. God regretted, or you know, Mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. he, these this is part of the process. And um, you know, when when you look at this, it also raises some really interesting questions about how we should view the rebellion of the divine council. Uh, If God's going to lament over the the king of Tyre, especially when you see the shared language between David and and Ezekiel's uh, laments. And you, you kind of um, it opens a new new world of the idea of their new realm of ideas about God's connection mm-hmm. with these beings who would dare turn their back on Him, and and the idea that Saul had to be, um, be replaced, and now these other kings from the other nations are going to be replaced because they're representatives of God, right. of their gods. You see this playing out in a microcosm, sure. And so, you've got to hold all those pieces in place at once, and trying to talk through them can be can be really interesting. So, yeah. <laughs> now in, in rabbinic tradition, Hiram is, is really celebrated. Um, he's actually upheld as a model for non-Jews to follow, okay, because he he does honor the king of Israel. And according uh, to et Etzrezzuta, which is one of the minor uh, tractates of the Talmud, he's counted among nine people to enter the Garden of Eden in their lifetime and live to tell about it. So, um, you know, you (laughs) see, he wasn't always a bad guy is what I'm saying. And he wasn't always considered to be uh, a questionable figure, but it seems like that was like a little brief, period of time in there so yeah. i mean
1: and that's not at all uncommon in literature to have someone who starts good and turns bad
2: right and 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 this is this is where things get convoluted and i bring all this stuff in because the the convoluted nature of it is based on outside sources and it's based on taking things out of context, as opposed to just reading what's on the page, Mm -hmm. and so that's what it comes back to. So there's some debate on when this actually happened, whether this happened immediately after David uh, conquered Jerusalem, or it's later in his reign. It really doesn't matter when it happened. The fact is, we're, we're told it happened mm-hmm. so uh, and also a, a lot of things in the Bible we, the the precise date the writer doesn't care about, or he would have given you better markers well, that's
1: <laughs> not how ancient history was done, and, and the precision of the calendar I mean we didn't even really have that until <laughs> much, much later.
2: well, it, you had to have ways of accurately documenting what was going on and retaining those documents, mm-hmm. and you know let's face it, they, there weren't a lot of libraries for you know, Mm -hmm. a long time, uh, up until Alexander the Great. And we aren't close to that at this point. So, because, you know, Papyrus and all of that good stuff. Anyway, so, okay, verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these were the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Now, we've already had um, a previous list of kids who were born to him in Hebron. This list does not include those kids because now we're just talking about the ones born in Jerusalem. So we have Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nefeg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Some oh, great whole lot of names. <laughs> a whole lot of names. Now, um, A better translation, let's start with this, uh, would be he took wives while in Jerusalem, uh, not after he was, or from Jerusalem. Uh, Zamor explains why the ESV says from, because it makes more sense that he married women, uh, you know, the idea that he took women from within the city. He's conquered it. Now Mm -hmm. he's going to take women within. That's got some negative connotations, obviously. But it actually makes more sense that he takes women, he marries women from prominent tribes and leaders within the nation, because even though the wives aren't named here, they, the fact that they would be from other Israelites who were prominent and held power, this would be another way for him to unite the nation under his right, rule. Right. So we we don't want to make too much of that word from um, uh, you know, it is a plausible uh, explanation or translation, but also is the word while. So he took women while in Jerusalem. So First Chronicles 3, 5 through 9 tells us that his first four sons in that list, because we have the same list over again, were born to Bathsheba. And it inserts two more names between Elishua and Ephag, which gives us a total of 13 sons. And we're specifically told that these sons are born to wives, not concubines, because there are other sons born to the concubines. Right. So we should also uh, note that in Chronicles, we have the only daughter to David named, which is Tamar. And she's going to be an important um, player in the upcoming stories. Now, (laughs) (laughs) what? yeah, that's going to be an interesting thing to go into. Now, it's interesting to note that in those first four sons, the third son, if you notice the name, is Nathan.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Now, I think all of us know that Nathan is the prophet who confronts David after David has taken Bathsheba back to his place and had Uriah killed, and that they have a child together who dies, and then they have have Solomon, who will become the king, Mm -hmm. but Nathan was the one who said, David... Had done something wrong, and David needed to do the right thing from here on out and So, I think it's really interesting that Bathsheba, because it's the women who name the children, mm-hmm. not the men, Bathsheba decides to name her third son after the prophet who stood up for her mm-hmm. in this time because you you never really get any insight into how Bathsheba feels about any of this stuff that's right. going on. she's just there. And so for her to name a son... At least you
1: don't get much insight into it till after the fact. I mean, there's evidence for how she might have felt about things later on.
2: Much later. Much later. And
1: like after David dies.
2: Exactly. But I do think it's interesting that, that she would decide that, that this is the name that her son should have. And I don't think I've ever had anyone mention that from any kind of sermon or Sunday school lesson because... It is insightful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you name your child after somebody who who means something to you. Mm -hmm. And um, now the other thing that I found was interesting, if you go over to the genealogy of Jesus in Luke 3, in verse 31, we find that Nathan is specifically uh, named in Jesus' genealogy. Now, if you go to Matthew, uh, the genealogy comes through Solomon, because we have two different... um, two different lists of people and family members in the two gospels. So we'll talk about what, why that is later, but the fact that it is Nathan who's named after the prophet, who becomes the ancestor of Jesus, according to Luke is, um, I don't know. It it just really, um, I I think it's fascinating. And so I am,
1: you get lost in your notes again.
2: I did, and I can't figure out what's going on. So, I'm oh not yeah, type. that's <laughs> I do. I know <laughs> it saves us a lot of time. Okay, so now the fact that David's taking so many wives it should start to cause us a little bit of unease because up to this point he's been the guy who's cast aside uh, you know the the leading social conventions and the way culture is supposed to be carried out and he's the guy who's been showing us a better expression about how God's kingdom is supposed to operate mm-hmm. and so you know, you you wonder, okay, has he gotten lazy with his success or or maybe in the fact that he stopped fighting for a minute, he's just gonna go with the flow. I mean, it's been ten to twelve years since Samuel first anointed him, and we've talked about that before. But during those ten years, you know, he was basically on the run from from Saul. He's been living with the Philistines. And maybe now that he's got a place where he can settle down, he he's just kind of Oh, I can let my guard down. I don't have mm-hmm. to work so hard. And, you know, sometimes I think as believers, a lot of us operate a little better when our feet are being held to the fire. And, you know, we, we tend to observe our faith more in the middle of adversity than we do in the day to day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that I can definitely see how that, that tends to hold true.
2: Well, we aren't weighing each decision. We, we aren't consciously thinking through everything we're doing and going, okay, this is what I need to do in this situation to be right with God or to honor God versus, you know, when you're just living your life, you, you think, oh, well, surely what I'm doing can't be that bad. You know, it's not that horrible of a thing. And, um, you know, we see David kind of you know, he's faltering by mm-hmm. taking this many waves, And we, with this mention of his children who are the result of this horrible event within David's life with Bathsheba, uh, where the writer is kind of making us look ahead to things aren't always going to be this rosy. Right. And so we have a little bit of a foreshadowing. Now, the, the great thing is that the instant David has an enemy, he goes right back to being the David we love and respect. Mm-hmm. Because in verse 17, we're told the Philistines, you, know, when they hear that David's been anointed king over all of Israel, they go up to search for for David. And so, you know, while while David was just king over Judah, they kind of left him alone. They he was still kind of their buddy. He was mm-hmm. their friend. They he lived with them. He'd served their king, and you know, living in Judah, having their own capital, not a big deal. But now, when you're over all of Israel. Now you're a legitimate threat. Sure. You're going to have an army big enough to pose some kind of threat. And um, also, you know, if David, his first move is to kick the Jebusites out of Jerusalem, who's to say that the Philistines living in the cities all around aren't going to be the next one to to be attacked mm-hmm. because they've been there since Saul's death. And so if David's willing to take Jerusalem, they need to be on guard and more than be on guard, they better strike first because that's the only way they're going to keep their their people uh, safe. So David hears of it and he goes to a stronghold. You know, this is possibly a, a fortress located somewhere close to Jerusalem. And this is a huge shift. And it, it's just said so plainly, we kind of forget. Always before when David had some kind of enemy pursuing him, David had run. Mm -hmm. He had never had the opportunity of just going to a fortress and saying, "Okay, let's make a battle plan. Sure. And so now the the Philistines, they they come out and they spread out over the Valley of the Rephaim. So rule number four is that geography is important. And in this case, again, we're looking kind of like with the Hiram case. It's important because it's symbolic. David is in Jerusalem. He is in the home of the future temple, and the temple is going to be this representation of of the Garden of Eden. You get your flowers, and you've got uh, the palm trees, and you've got, uh, they're going to be aligned on the same compass points, uh, the Garden of Eden and the temple. You're going to have cherubim. You're going to have a lampstand that, that. um Represents the tree of life, and there's going to be precious jewels and metals—the same ones listed and talked about with the Garden of Eden—and the uh, the what? That's what I'm trying to figure out.
1: I'm telling you, you gotta, <laughs> this is bad. I get some typing going on. Word and, processor, you can edit stuff. Yeah. So you have the lamp stand that represents the tree of life. Where, yeah, where are you going with that?
2: I have absolutely no idea. Okay. Oh, it's because I've got this page out of order. So Jerusalem's going to become the place where humanity and God are are going to interact. It's going gotcha. to be the central place, and so um, when they become the place where God's going to interact, uh, it's going to be reminiscent of Eden because this is the place where God and humanity walked together and they talked, and so. We we have these these points of connection. Uh, Jerusalem being on a mountaintop, Eden was located on a mountaintop. We got rivers rolling out, but the valley of the Raphaim is below Jerusalem on the southeastern side, okay. and the north end marks the beginning of the Judean tribal lands and the begin or the end of the Judean tribal lands and the beginning of Benjamin's tribal lands. And so the name itself is something that connects us back to early Canaanite inhabitants, because when they went to the promised land, what did they see? Giants. Also, we have giants among the Mm -hmm, Philistines. mm -hmm. And so when we talk about the Raphaim, we're talking about giants, we're talking about shades, we're talking about spirits, we're talking about more than just physical beings who can be giants. We're also talking about spiritual forces. And so the battle provides this imagery of God's representative David descending from on high to confront a supernatural enemy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And you know this is the imagery we want from a king whose sole purpose is to fight on God's behalf. And we we want to we want that foreshadowing because what does Jesus do? You know he's the king who descends on high to confront the enemies mm-hmm. of, of God. And so when we talk about this battle happening in the battle of the Valley of, or in the Valley of the Raphael, we have this beautiful imagery that foreshadows so much and gives us a whole different viewpoint of this is more than just, this is more than just a battle for land that David's very rule and reign is about establishing sacred space mm-hmm. a place for god to interact with humanity and a place where god can can make himself known and not just make himself known but he's going to invite you to be a part of it sure and so i think one of the things that we kind of forget with all of this we get caught up in the historical side of things was david a real person and you know did he actually do these things i believe he was And I believe these things did happen. But the point is, we're supposed to be preparing ourselves to embrace Jesus Mm -hmm. through this imagery of of David's rule. So that's kind of, we'll stop right there. We'll pick up with the next um, story or the rest of the battle here in a little bit. Well, well, a little bit for you and me. So
1: next week for everyone else. (laughs) Right. In the meantime, if you want to talk to us about this, Get us organized, keep us in line, whatever we got to do. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. Um, my apologies. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it happens. Uh, you know, hit us up, RavenCreekSC.com. Uh, you can. There's a contact page on there where it gets you the email to us. Mm-hmm. Um, there is Raven Creek SC on all the social media where you can find us. Um, also, check out some of the other things we've got going on. We've got uh, "Change My Mind" with uh, Luke T. Harrington. Mm-hmm. We host him here, and then uh, the commentarians with Joe Zaragoza lots of interesting episodes lately i've really been enjoying the commentarians so um yeah go hit those up and in the meantime we will uh see you on the internet thanks Bye. bye
0: you've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.